Real Estate Rockstars listeners, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. Hey, this next episode is another episode of the King's Table podcast, a new podcast that I launched with three friends of mine. All have different experience, uh, two of them in real estate, one in manufacturing in both China and Mexico, where we talk about some of the economics in the world, some of our opinions about what's going to be happening, how to deal with the news, and how you can apply it in your life. So I hope you guys really, really like this. Be sure to reach out to me on Instagram or through reviews and let us know what you think about the King's Table podcast. Without further ado, here it is. Welcome back to the King's Table podcast. I have my friends. I'm your host, uh, Shish Nathu. I am joined by the one and only Maddie A, the hero of hospitality, letting his hair down today. Oh, yeah. Uh, and of course, the trend spotter himself, Aaron Amucha Steggy, coming in hot from Austin. And uh, I'm coming in from China today. It is 3 a.m. because I am un- unable to coordinate time zones during the <laughs> scheduling process. So it, we are that committed to doing this podcast with everybody um, that we are all logging in from different places in different time zones. Um, so it's super fun. Uh, unfortunately, Maddie A, or sorry, Mike. Mike couldn't be bothered to join the podcast because he needed to do some family and friends stuff today, but we are still committed to recording. And so here we go. Um, yeah. So how are you guys doing? Good to see you. Doing good, man. Yeah. Doing real good. Getting excited. We're in Cali. Like we're turning the corner from being like hot, dry weather to starting to get cool, crisp mornings. And I'm starting to feel a little sense of fall. So my wife busted out like the, you know, the pumpkin spice K-cups for the Keurig. So, you know, shit's oh, going down. Oh, it's coming. Ice. We've had like five days in a row under 90 here. When we had like, we, I don't remember how many days in a row we had that were like 100, 110. Like Austin just came off like the hottest months ever of record. The most days yeah. in a row over a certain temperature. And so it's funny, 90 degrees out, people are like, I need a jacket. I need a sweater. It's so mm. we went to the soccer game last night and my son's like, can you buy me a blanket? And I'm like, it's 90 degrees. <laughs> and he's like, can you go down and buy me a blanket? Before we, before we got started, I was thinking how amazing it is the time that we live because Ashish just said, he's calling in from China. It's 3am. And when I asked him like, where are you from? Where are you at today? He's like, I'm in China. And there's absolutely no delay. Like the internet is this magical thing that has really put the world at our fingertips. And more than anything else, like why are more billionaires created all the time? Why are more hundred millionaires created? Because you can be across the world and it can feel like you're in the same room with me. And then people start to use VAs and outsource or manufacture in other places. The opportunities that we have because of when we live and technology is just fascinating. So it's crazy you're in China and we don't have, we have a worse delay when Mike's calling us from Phoenix. And <laughs> Yeah, we were, te- we were teasing him because he's running a father-son mastermind out there. And he's like, I'm running this. I'm like, come on, your priorities, dude. Your father-son stuff. And the last thing I need to say about Matty A's hair is ever since I've known Matty, I've been so jealous of what he can do I'm with jealous. his hair. And how fast he can grow Look at that hair, man. Look at dude, how his pretty that hair is. His beautiful blonde locks are it like is. 10 inches long now. And I feel like he shaved his head like 30 days ago. Yeah, I know. I've been, uh, I, I was going to rock my girl dad hat, but I figured I would, uh, I would grace the internet with, uh, my mm, beautiful luxurious Fabio presence. Yeah. We have a lot of good topics today. So I think we just kind of dive in. Um, 
let's I kind of want to start with more of a global discussion. There's a lot of things that I've been watching uh, in the last few weeks that I think are worth talking about. Um, and then we have some local things. We want to process an issue for, for, for uh, Mooch. So let's just kind of get into it. So firstly, um, I want to get into the re- Ukraine war. And Mooch, maybe you give us a little bit of uh, perspective about what you think is interesting to talk about. I also, uh, last week or the week before, OPEC refused to increase oil production based on a request from the U.S., which is like the first time they've ever said, no, go screw yourself. Um, And oil is is at like 90 bucks a barrel or something like that. And, and, you know, the U.S. is under stress. So it's the first time that OPEC is really standing up for themselves um, and keeping production levels low not refusing to reduce oil prices, which I think is a super interesting thing. And then, you know, um, the world order conversation is something that I'm really fascinated about. Um, Ray Dalio, I think, wrote a book about this, that every 250 years, a the world order of the country that is in control, and he's got like 10 different metrics and why this is happening. Uh, the world order changes. And so Assuming that the United States, well, I shouldn't say assuming, but definitely the United States is at the top of the barrel right now in the world order. But based on metrics, uh, it definitely shows that we are in decline and there are rising powers in the forms of India and China that are starting to come up. And so, and he gives a lot of different examples about high debt and societal pressures, cultural pressures that we're experiencing right now in the United States that are all kind of interlaced and connected that ultimately cause this this um, this cross-section of a, of a new world order. So going back to the Ukraine war, I think it's also connected. Just today, um, China sent a bunch of warplanes to Taiwan and then turned them right back around. So just testing testing what's going on with the world, right? So it's just super fascinating what's happening with these dynamics of of people around the world testing U.S. power, and what are we going to do? So let's start with Ukraine, and then maybe we can lace around some of these other topics. And or why is it like I want to channel my Mike Ayala, Mr. Sage Mike Ayala, is why is any of this important to us? Why does it matter? How can we apply it, it to like? Like, because we not only want to share the news, like ideally we give people some like, what do you do with the info? Um, I'm excited about all three of those topics and, and maybe where it'll tie into, you know, even current economics and, and really yes. the warfare behind all of them. Because I think the warfare with OPEC is closely related to Ukraine. And you'll, I guess you'll hear that when we get to it. So the Ukraine thing has been this controversial thing for like a year. And we had some listeners reach out to us and say like, what do you guys think about it? And my opinion of it has been, has been changing throughout. And so there's, there's this part of me that says, Hey, the whole thing is, uh, is just a, is just bullshit. And the whole reason it's set up is like funnel money over to other countries. Now I'm going to put that aside for a second. So there is, there's something behind, there's something about that. There's probably some truth to that when you start to look into, you know, political stuff and moving money and how much money goes out to it. I don't want to get into that. Um, even though that could be a very valid thing. Because the part of it that I think like is applicable or what it really got me thinking instead was there is this outcry of like, why are we sending money to Ukraine when our schools are poor, 
when our people are poor, when people are struggling, when inflation is bad, when people are getting for when when the U.S. is kind of in turmoil, and you know, there's all these stats of we've sent so many gazillions of dollars to Ukraine, and if we split that up by every American, it's a lot of money, right? But here's this thing that it got me thinking: was now what if it's all for legit reason? What if the reality is the U.S. wants to fight a war with Russia? The U.S. wants to be able to sanction Russia, wants to be able to kind of push them, keep, keep them occupied, keep them distracted on stuff other than like politics and economics and things that are going over here. So if it all, so then the question comes back to, so like in Afghanistan and Iraq, we sent a bunch of troops there. We sent a bunch of troops there for a long, long time, right? And there's this combination of not only did we spend money, but we lost American lives. And so what the new Ukraine test could be, if I'm going to give all the players the benefit of the doubt, and where it could actually be this new brilliant plan, so what if the Biden administration, the government, or whoever is saying, hey, we want to fight a war with Russia, but rather than send our troops over there, we can let somebody else fight the war and we'll just pay them. So it's not Americans that are dying. It's not Americans that are getting shot at. Like, so can we actually fight a war with a superpower without using any of our own troops. And when I think about it that way, I think about it as this possible like big power move and probably the way that I would prefer the US to fight wars, right? So can you actually fund someone else to fight instead? And now maybe it costs twice as much because I do think the American war machine is, is some of the most, you know, best highly trained technology stuff out there. You know, maybe that's propaganda that's just because we grew up out here. I remember going to Cuba and the Cubans believed that they had the biggest war machine in the world. The U.S. was afraid to fight them because of how big their military was. And I remember going to these military museums there going, man, the propaganda is strong out there because they believe mm. like the U.S. would never mess with us because we have so many jets and stuff. But, but anyway, so I guess that's the topic. And or the question is, if it's all for legit purposes, what do you guys think about the idea of paying others to fight our wars for us? Is it, is it noble? Is it just, is that the way we should be fighting our wars instead? Matt, what do you think? You know, I, I, I share in your sentiment on pretty much the entire narrative there in the sense of there's the, you know, the skeptic in me, right. That says the the negligent amount of, of spending and aid packages and, you know, how money is continued to get funneled over there it doesn't all necessarily make sense to me. And I'm going to preface my, my responses with, you know, I haven't done a significant amount of due diligence in terms of really digging into how all of these aid packages are being spent. I mean, when you think about, they call it pork, right? When you think about the amount of pork that goes into a lot of these bills, you know, it's, for example, the aid package that, you know, ultimately was supposed to go to FEMA and support what happened in, you know, Maui uh, was only going to get pushed through if there was, you know, another, I don't know, tens of, you know, millions of dollars getting pushed over to Ukraine, right? And every time there's, you know, some type of bill or something that ultimately really needs to get done, you know, in the United States, they continue to, you know, pair those things getting pushed forward with the incentive that something in terms of, you know, what has to go over to Ukraine has to get to accompany it. I think two things can be true at once, though. That's one of my, 
you know, my, my quotes that I've been living by this year is, you know, two or multiple things can be true at once. There could be fraudulent and, you know, um, I think negligent spending and, and aid packages going over to the war. And I also think that there could be good use for it as well. That isn't necessarily lining, you know, the, the pockets of certain people or, you know, corporate interests or organizations. And I also think that we are testing that exact concept concept out, which I talked to actually a handful of my buddies that are relatively high up in the military. And they said that exact thing. We are testing whether we can fight wars on other people's soils without us having to send any of our own actual human beings and bodies, or at least large, you know, swaths of those individuals going over. Um, So I think those things are going on right now. And I think we're really using this as a potential testing ground for other potential battles like a Taiwan with China going on um, and the tension that's building there. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm very, I'm, 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 definitely skeptical about the amount of money that has gone over there and how quickly it's gone over there and how quickly that money can really make an impact in the areas that they're saying it's going and going to impact. That being said, I think, you know, there's obviously the industrial war complex, right? Where, you know, you got big corporations and big international and national interests tied to war and tied to, you know, big business behind war. So um, I think there's a lot of things at play here that I don't fully understand. And yet, um, I think that we do want to fight a war with Russia. And it's kind of, you know, the easiest enemy to, um, to kind of pick a fight with right now based on our strengths and some of the hooks that we have in each other before we potentially get into the 10 round heavyweight championship fight of the world with a potential power like China. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This yeah, is a really interesting topic. Go ahead, Mitch. I was going to just lining up what Maddie said there about Maui. It's really easy for people to say like only this much money went to Maui, but this much is going to Ukraine. Right. For what's supposed to be similar. And the Maui thing is this whole other frustrating thing of like, hey, they could implement PPP type stuff instantly like we did during COVID and solve like we've already have the system and they could really solve the financial issue there. And the fact that like nobody cares enough to do anything. Man, my heart goes out to the people of Maui because but when you compare those because there is a solution for that. We tested it during COVID. They can implement it tomorrow. And, um, and it's already been worked out. And for whatever reason, they're not doing that with business owners and workers and people are leaving Maui for jobs. When you first look at like Maui gets this much, Ukraine gets this much. It's like, that's not fair. Money's going somewhere else. But if the narrative gets changed to say it's two totally different buckets, like we're saying it's for humanitarian, but it's for fighting. And then the crappy part about it is like, what, where are the like checks and balances to make sure that the hundreds of millions of dollars get sent to, to Ukraine aren't lining pockets of the wrong people or whatever. Yeah. Sheesh, what do you think? Well, I, I think this is a very complex and long discussion. But I think if we go back and simplify it, it's like, why is this all really important? And I think that when we when we go down and narrow it down is that, you know, as as a country and we are Americans, so let's just speak from this perspective first, mm-hmm. is that I think we've lost our way a little bit in that we sh- we have 
sort of ignored or unprioritized the health, stability, and security of our own people and country and nation for the, I guess, political and global power um, struggle that we are experiencing. And so we see that in we see that in Hawaii. We see that in all the major inner cities. Um, we see that in our economy and. So that's kind of the biggest thing for me is like, well, wait a second. Why can't we just scratch a check, you know, for Hawaii in a heartbeat, but we spend hundreds of billions of dollars to send overseas and we don't have unanimous support for that. And yet we do it. And so we've kind of lost our way in that perspective. And I think that's something we, we really need to think about. Um, from a From a global perspective, I think that I see the world splitting in two different um, halves with actually, I, in my opinion, I think India is kind of nicely, conveniently right in the middle and they're strategically there. And I'll, and I'll share a little bit about that, but I think we see Western democracies, Europe, <clears throat> the United States, um, Australia, com- countries like that. And then you have Russia, China, North Korea on the other side of the, of the planet. And you have India conveniently in the middle. Um, and that's not by accident. And so this political posturing that has happened over probably 100 years or more of people sending resources and controlling the world for our own internal, I guess, I suppose, benefit or, or it's it's also convoluted. And there's a lot of people that talk about this. I, I'm not educated enough or I'm not a global economist to talk about it. But what I see is that there's the wastage that we are spending globally and also just in in our country i mean we have a lot of republicans running for president right now that are talking about the bureaucratic state right it's like how much money are we spending just in the united states and our government and our budgets and so for me it goes back to like utilization efficiency and waste so but going back to your question mooch is i i would have to say that it's probably smarter to spend money than it is to to send our people but then also it's why are we spending that money and what is the what is the purpose are we just trying to maintain our world order are we trying to maintain our you know our position on the chessboard and is that why we're spending the money is that a war we really belong in right are we defending something that we as a country believe in i mean we internally in the us we're we're split on this issue right so it's ironic yeah. We can't even agree that what are we fighting for? So, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts. I think it's a very fascinating situation that we're in. And, you know, when you go back to China, China will take over Taiwan, whether it's diplomatically, whether it's um, militarily, they believe that it belongs to them. And we can sit on our high horse. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this in different perspectives now, but you know, I've been here. I've talked to the people here. There is there is little to no doubt that it already belongs to them. Um, they don't even think of it as a different country. They look at it like a territory, like we look at Puerto Rico. So, you know, are we prepared to go to war for an island that, uh, you know, are we prepared to go to war for that? And we're not going to be able to just send money on that war. That one's not going to work. And that that territory takeover will be like three days. It won't be years 
and hundreds of it, it'll take three days or less, right? They, so they thought you they thought Ukraine was going to take a week. Yeah, right. They did think that Russia was going to take Ukraine within a week, and um, and so who knows? But you're right. But but I think that uh, China's military is newer. Well, also the geography of Taiwan, right? It's a, it's an island. It's small. Um, we don't have quite the naval strength as China does geographically. The fact that they're so close, so you know, we're we're not we're not war gaming here, and you and I are probably not the right people to analyze yeah. all that. But like, just just common sense would tell you is what makes us think that somehow, unless we're going to spend a ton of money and a ton of human resources, the other thing is interesting about this whole all the war and spending and all that is that you know we're not sending people but we're sending money and we're also sending um like bullets and ammo and a lot of articles are talking about how we're running out of those things and i think that's really interesting too is we spend like 800 billion dollars in our defense budget and we're running out of ammo how is that possible so we can only have enough ammo to send to one war we don't have enough ammo to send to another one or have enough here it's just really interesting things going on. Yeah. Well, I think it too, at the same time, right? When you talk about like, I'll just, I'll, I'll look at it through the lens of being a human being first. I don't want to see anybody die, right? Like, especially over greed and power. And yet you go back and you look at, you know, everybody's talking about the Roman empire right now, but you go back, right. And you talk about all of these different, you know, rises and falls of, you know, big, countries and big empires right it's 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 always around control and greed and power and ultimately the martyrs are always human lives and so i never want to see that that being said i think that as we get more and more into and i'll just use this example of ukraine hearing and seeing one thing in the media and what is ultimately being pushed out versus there's a lot of what I love about technology. And one of the cool things about, you know, social media now is this grassroots reporting, right? There's some really good Instagram accounts that I follow that are kind of grassroots reporters that get in there and they really get on the front lines and they really ask questions and they really poke holes and they really ruffle feathers to get to the truth of what we're not getting in the mainstream news and media. And as we've seen more and more people do that in Ukraine, what is being told to us and fed to us in the media versus what's actually happening there on the front lines as dire as it might be and or not as dire as it might be. It, I, it continues to erode my trust in the fact that what we're doing and why we say we're doing it is actually the real reason and therefore accomplishing what it is that we're actually set out to accomplish by engaging in those activities and it not feeling aligned or honest or truthful makes me really wonder if we're actually getting what it is that we want out of this, if anything at all. And that's where I start to really think about how does this impact us, you know, stateside now and into the future? And are we getting played in this whole process? And are we really mm. setting ourselves up for even bigger, more catastrophic failures, not just financially or, you know, economically, right? But something even more dire than that. Those are the things that, you know, I get concerned about as a little bit more of a doomsday mentality and mindset. And yet, right, what can I control? What can I control? 
How do I focus on the controllables in my business, in my life, how I lead people, how I lead my family and my kids, how do I protect our downsides, right? Things like that. I mean, I guess I'm curious from your guys' perspective of like worst case scenarios. We were talking about this the other day in uh, in kind of a little group of like, hey, if 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 you know if, if Iran decided to create a nuclear bomb or Russia, you know, and Putin gets pissed off one day and decides to press the button, right? Like, what would you do? Do you guys have a backup plan? Do you have a worst case scenario plan, or would we all be fucked at the end of the day and you know just throw your hands up? It is what it is. Have you guys thought about that? Well, what's your backup plan? What's your worst case scenario apocalypse? Yeah, we, we were, I, I asked my dad this. I was like, "Hey, like if if let's say one big city, you know, in the U.S. got nuked, like, do you have a plan? Like, what what would we do?" And he's like, "I don't have a plan." And I'm like, "Well, that's becoming more and more of a, an actual reality as a potential possibility. Mm. Like, it's very you know percentage wise." So, 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 so low. And yet it's also accelerated and gotten more and more probable, like statistically on paper. And I was like, man, I really feel like I should think about this, right? Like, what do you need? Gas masks? You need a, an underground bunker? Like how dire do you plan for? Um, or do you just throw your hands up and say, you know, me and my kids, I kiss them on the forehead and, you know, what, what happens happens. Yeah. And so we really started thinking about this discussion of like worst case scenario and does worst case scenario warrant that type of energy and attention and focus or is it better allocated elsewhere and living in abundance, right? Or is this healthy level of paranoia actually something that Pat David Bett talks a lot about this, right? Of like, whether you're a business owner and you're an entrepreneur, you might think that your business is crushing it and killing it, right? But if you don't have this healthy sense of paranoia, always trying to look around a corner, always trying to look at what your competitors are doing, right? Like that's what keeps top performers and peak performers constantly looking for ways to innovate, to build a bunker or moat around certain aspects of your business, your lifestyle, whatever it may be. And so it just got me thinking of like, this healthy level of paranoia around World War Three is that something that deserves any energy and attention or not? That's a great question. Yeah. Mooch? So I think a couple of things. I think like starting at that be beginning of, of the Ukraine stuff because we're so divided. I think the government got it wrong on the story that we were telling. Because if we simply said, we cannot let Russia get any bigger and start taking other countries because we believe they won't stop and we believe it will become a conflict or a world war that we will not be able to stay out of. So they said, we can't let them get out. So we have a choice between sending 500,000 troops to, to Ukraine, or we can send them money instead. And we're going to send them money instead. I think if we told that story specifically, we'd be way less divided because what we're seeing is like, oh, we're sending humanitarian for like the schools over there to like, like tear people's heart strings. And people go, screw that. Send that money to Hawaii, period. So yeah. like they're telling yeah. the wrong story for what I think is happening. And if they just told the truth about it, I think that actually everybody would go, yes, we don't want Russia to get any bigger either. We'd rather stop them here. And we don't want a bunch of American troops in the Ukraine. You keep going. So if they had done that, if, if they had told that story, I think there'd be a lot more, there'd be a, it'd be a lot less divisive. Because like, I think it's because before I started thinking that that was a strategy, 
I thought it was a horrible idea. And now that I think that that probably is the strategy, I'm like, all right. Like, I think that, I think they're probably doing the right thing, but they should just be being honest. The World War II, three, four apocalypse scenario of like backup plan. It was not long ago when many of my friends out here in Texas sold their property, moved to farms. This was, yeah. this was just like within the last 24 months. Everybody's moving to Wyoming. 24 months. You know, <laughs> so I Wyoming has bought, got bunkers. Yes. The people that bought 50 acres in Arkansas because it was driving distance to where we live in Austin. There is, I can name dozens and dozens of people that I know that stopped life as they know it mm-hmm. to go to essentially become preppers for a catastrophe that was supposed to happen before now. Now, it kind of goes back to my thing like a few weeks ago of like, there's a fine line between success and failure. Like, so mm-hmm. let's say apocalypse happens. We're like, you guys are brilliant. And then it doesn't happen. And we're like, that was silly. What a wasted effort. So it's really <laughs> easy to like back street quarterback at the end. But I remember at the time when people said, buy this land with us, should we have a, you know, should we get a jet just so we can escape? Should we buy the place in Costa Rica? And everything that I said is before it gets to people killing their neighbors for food type thing, because that was the, that is the story, right? Of like when all this stuff is happening and they're controlling and now there's no oil and people will come like attack you to feed their families. That's the prepper mentality, which I'm not against. I'm not anti. I think like, like I'm not anywhere through that. But my biggest mantra was we're not there yet. And there will be a lot more signs. So let's say like there comes a time where we think it's going to happen and it's going to be inevitable. The land will cost twice as much as it costs now, but it's not going to be impossible. Or getting on the jets is going to cost three times as much, as it costs, but it's not going to be impossible. So the reality of like, do you prep now? or something just in case, or do you wait till the clues are a lot closer? Like, I think there'll be a lot more clues, a lot more things that are like, Hey, now it's inevitable and it's not going to be quite as easy to get guns. And it's not going to be quite as easy to get the cow and all that stuff, but it's still possible. And that goes back to like, why do you want to become a billionaire? Because like the, yeah, I'd still like at the end of the day, people will still like the end of the world, they're going to still sell their stuff. They're just going to charge more for it. Um, so that's my thought. I don't think there's, I don't think it is worth any inkling of effort at all to prep right now because we're going to have before, because before that nuke gets sent off, we're going to be like, Oh my God, a nuke's getting sent tomorrow because they just sent one over to Ukraine. Like before Russia sends a nuke here, they're sending one across the border to Ukraine. When that happens, I'm freaked out when, you know, if Taiwan gets taken and then we send uh, nukes to Taiwan to, to like protect themselves, then it's closer. So right now, nope, don't spend any time prepping. Because my friends that did it at the time, I thought, hey, there'd be clues. There'll be more clues as we get closer. And I don't think they were wrong. They're just early, probably. They might also be wrong. And like, they're going to, and they forewent a couple years of a way different lifestyle. Like, they will be way more prepared to skin their own chickens and kill their own cows than I am. (laughs) Flat out. But could I learn it if I needed to next week? Yeah. So that's, that's my feeling. There'll be a lot more signs before it's time. Funny story on that. And I'll, I'll kick it to you. Ash was, uh, this was like kind of post 2020. Right. And all of a sudden everything in my, you know, Facebook feed was 
people doing stuff like that and or it was, you know, the tactical company that's trying to sell me tactical gear. It's the face mask, you know, gas mask company trying to sell me a gas mask, the food, food, you know, dry food storage company that's sending me a year's worth of, you know, dry food. And it's so funny, right? Because they always talk about fear sells. You know, there's there's a big old section of my garage that has been collecting dust for the last three years with gas masks, with food, with, uh, you know, water and all this tactical gear. And I'm like, what a fucking waste, you know, like what, what am I really going to save myself or any of my family from if shit really got to that level, right? You, to be able to have some type of truly impactful plan, you're going to have to do it on a much larger scale, in my opinion. And so I, I think it was just that good reminder for me of like, you know, don't don't buy into the fear and the hype around those things because I love what you said, Mooch. There will be a lot more signs, and you know, I think there will be different paths and resources available at that time if and when those things come to fruition. Yeah, there's and there's probably some insurance things that are like worth the cost. So, like I remember right before when COVID was starting to become a thing, it was like, yeah, we'll pay three hundred bucks for like the four month supply of food from yeah. like one of those boxes, but the food was absolutely garbage when we got it and it was like i would rather eat the same can of beans for and the funny part too is if you saw our pantry for a while mm-hmm. we had like right, 50 boxes of hole. like salt we're already beans. talking about we're already talking about the canned beans we've already oh, built dude. the bunker we've already furnished the bunker in Bush's dude, we got life. caught up in some of the stuff in the first couple of weeks of covid by just buy whatever food we can get <clears> whatever <throat> they're still on the and we threw so much of it away 6 months later but ashish what do you think well i think look i think Going back to the first sentence Maddie said is that like, you know, I think it's really interesting how important we really think we are. And the conversation we're having today is not to exacerbate fear or talk about like, oh my God, we're going to war. It's really just to help people understand like what's really going on. And this perspective that, you know, fear sells and that is true. And we're we consume social media, we consume, you know, media, normal media, you know, you see these companies selling you crap that you think you need that you don't really need. I, I just find it interesting how much mind space we give that. And when you really step back, you know, I'm in China right now. And I and I posted something about this, like the first time I came back to China after COVID was in May of 2023. So for three years, I couldn't come back. I just came back from Saudi Arabia for the first time. I was just there a week ago. I was in Dubai and I've never really traveled to the Middle East until this year. And, and I'm sure you guys would agree to this is that like when you just live your everyday life and you just do the things you're doing, people are incredibly kind, simple, focus on what they're doing, focus on their families, focus on their little ecosystems and worlds. And I, and I got to tell you, man, I was in Saudi Arabia, which is uh, the whole nother conversation, okay? (laughs) But I will tell you, I was so amazed, so taken back about how open people were about talking about things, about embracing people from all around the world, all different cultures. Um, And it's just really fascinating how we are – propagandized i mean to a certain extent and and i used to tell people like the whole world is controlled by like a hundred people 
or like let's say it's a thousand people. There's a thousand people controlling everything, and they're just pulling the strings, right? You think that there's more than half a dozen people deciding to pull the trigger on a nuclear weapon? No, there's not some committee. There's not some like population that's voting of a half a million, half a billion people or something. It's like six people that are like, yeah, pull the trigger. And so I think it's really interesting, and I'm speculating, but like that's my perspective, is that I think the everyday life on the ground goes to just being happy. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but like you can only control what you can control. And that's what I see on the street. I see that in the street in China. I see that in the street in Saudi. And I think we as Americans, because we live in this society of so much freedom, it actually, we, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast is how much is too much freedom? What's the danger of too much freedom is we get so scared. We live in this like hyposensitive world and we almost create our own problems. And, um, so true. you know what I mean? We kind of create our own problems yeah. and, uh, this world war three thing and, and going back to the world order, it, it states that when a world order changes, there has to be war in order for the change to happen. There, it can't just be a peaceful transition from one number one to number two. Right. And you can see that in history. The question is, is whether or not that transition of power which likely is inevitable in history. It is not proven that it has not happened. Okay. So there's two things to talk about is what can, what can we do to hold that power? And is that possible? And number two is if there's a transition of power based on today's technology and the world that we live in today, is that a military war or is that a technology information war? You know, is meaning, is it a violent war? versus a nonviolent war. Mm -hmm. um, and, and is that how the transition of power works? But I think going back to like 101 stuff, man, you know, do I want to spend mind space thinking about how I'm going to live after a nuclear bomb goes off in Los Angeles or New York or whatever? Or do I want to just be like, look, if I go, I go. But before that happens, I'm enjoying my life. I'm spending time with the people that I'm want to, I'm fulfilling whatever vision I, I want to uh, impart on this world. And then when shit hits the fan, we're all screwed anyways. So jump on an RV, go to Wyoming, go, go to go, like, do what you got to do, I suppose. But like, am I, do I want to live my life in, you know, and, and that's, what's really fascinating. You come to Saudi Arabia where, when we come, when we see the news, we have this perspective, we have this, this assumption of what life, what the world will look like as soon as we get there. And then you go there and they're smiling, inviting, welcome, warm, living their everyday life. It's, it, you know, it's like the 0.01%. It's always, it's, it's that what we want to believe almost. And I don't think mm -hmm. it's our fault. I think it's human nature, right? Psychologically, we are, we are human beings that need to know what we should be afraid of. You know, where do we live so that the bear doesn't come and eat us? It's it's somewhat instinctual. So, but we, you know, we we, we live in this first world society where we have to create these problems for ourselves. So I, I think it's just interesting because, um, and I, I wouldn't have this perspective even two weeks ago. I'm really, really impressed and surprised about how really generally peaceful the world is when you get I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're 
you're right. I think every, everywhere I've ever been, I mean, Maddie, you've been to Vietnam. I didn't I, go on that GoBundance trip, but I've been all over in, in other places in the, uh, mm-hmm. I, I went to Haiti in Cuba. Now in Haiti, I can't go back right now because the, the, the warlords have taken over too much and started kidnapping too many people. But I was there once and we got pulled over by guys with machine guns and masks. And like, I've been in even the craziest parts of there and it felt like this isn't as bad as we thought, you know? So I think if we were going to, um, kind of jump topics, but try to summarize this, Mike would say, yeah. why does it matter? Does it matter? And I would say like for topic number one, the only part that matters with it all is like, should we be, should we spend a bunch of time worrying and stressing about stuff? I say no. And then the only other way to prepare, right? I say no, not yet, because if something is coming to the end, like for now, live your life to the fullest because other, you know, you can always, there'll be more signs before now. Like it's better. This is one thing where it's no, there's no benefit of being super early. Uh, in the prepping category of getting ready for this, um, and and most and and probably there's a chance that no matter what you do, you're if you're you know, if you're nuked, you're nuked. You're I, don't live in an RV. <laughs> I don't want to live in an RV in Wyoming anyway for the rest of my life. Like, yeah. That seems horrible. You, All the prepper you, plans that people gave me, I was like, that sucks. Kill me. But you can't get out of your RV, okay? You can't get out. <laughs> right. Like yeah, you, yeah, can, no. you can be in Wyoming, but you can't get out. Don't forget. Right, kill me anyway. I don't care. But um, so it's like, but I, the thing I do think applies is inflation and um because the war machine keeps inflation going and inflation is that battle that we're fighting right now as we jump to opec and then even on a transition to opec right because what i think is really happening with opec you said will the next wars be fought with people or with computers last week mgm got hacked all their casinos hotels vegas i was there were you yes and the and as i was flying out like Room keys stopped working everywhere. They're getting access to slot machines stopped working in the middle of like people had money in the machines and all of a sudden it said zero. And people are like, wait, it said I had a thousand dollars and now I have zero and my room keys aren't working. And it was like, you know, they got hacked and essentially they, the, the hackers were saying, give us X dollars. And we'll turn your it was system like seventeen million dollars they got in the yeah. hostage or something got, like and that. We'll turn your 30. system back on. But like they also know, like, of course it's even worth seventeen million. But if we send them seventeen million, are they actually going to turn it on, or are they going to ask for another seventeen after? So it's one of the craziest scenarios ever. Yeah. So that is a battle, a huge battle that just happened with a giant company, and it costs them tens of millions of dollars in a day, right? Yeah. Back yeah. in the eighties. Russia, there's this old, there's these old good like spy series that talked about this. But back in the 80s, Russia tried to fight the U.S. and take the U.S. out in a war. Really, it was a war of dollars where they were trying to devalue the U.S. currency. And one of the things that Russia did behind it was they were essentially they were they were stacking up on buying U.S. dollars and then shorting them all in the same day. Now, because of the, like the U.S. spy machine back then. They were aware that it was going to happen. And so the day it started to happen, they had some things in place to stop the dollar from essentially going to zero and being devalued to zero. But back in the 80s, it was this giant tactic by Russia. that They were like, we're going to take out the U.S. financially instead. So I'll try to remember the name of the series that really goes into it. But that was like a first war getting taught. Our CIA, our, our spy stuff is what stopped it from actually being bad. But it almost worked. It almost got pulled off. It was a huge day in the news. When it was happening, the dollar was tanking. Reagan was president at the time. So what I think is really going on with OPEC is this other similar thing, right? Like we are getting in. So U.S. needs inflation to get under control 
or the U.S. Fed is going to have to keep raising rates because that's the only weapon they know. Mm -hmm. And there's turmoil starting to happen. Credit cards are getting maxed out. People have less cash. I have less cash. I'm getting stressed, right? Like the, um, and so if they can't get inflation under control, they're going to keep pushing Fed fund rates up. At this point, it's going to be like that till 2025, right? Like, so we start to get some news a couple of weeks ago that inflation started to get tamed a little bit, Mm -hmm. which means cost of gas is going to come back down. Right. If inflation gets tamed, gas comes down, other things come down. But what does OPEC do? They say, we're going to limit our barrels of oil. So our cost of oil and gas comes down, saying that inflation is coming back. They say, no, let's now limit it. Cost of gas and inflation goes back up. So I think it's warfare, uh, what's going on with OPEC. Um, I think it is strategy of the combination of like China and everybody else saying, if we keep the US in a high inflationary position, they're yep. going to keep raising the Fed rate and keep it high until there is turmoil and way more foreclosures and way more commercial foreclosures and businesses that struggle that really gives places like China. And, and, and I think that could come off like conspiracy, but to me, no. it's just simple math and simple stuff. They like right yeah, after we announced like gas prices going down, OPEC did it again. Like <clears throat> did it also did it like 60 or 90 days ago, right after an announcement. So I think it's warfare. I think it's warfare. Like what Russia did in the eighties. And, um, yeah, I, and I also remember when Trump was president, or maybe when he was running, he talked about, like, I will get the price of oil down because I will make them bring the price of oil down, right? And, and there were times when it was going on with how, like, threatening or with sanctions or other trading stuff that he was able to get what he wanted by being really aggressive with NATO, with all sorts of things that were going on. And I think that our, the current administration has done a complete opposite. To where I do think that Trump or, or I, I, think, I think the president, whoever it is, has the power to be more aggressive in fighting that back. And they should be pushing some attention there right now because of be. how big of a deal it is. Because inflation is going to crush so much other stuff. And, and like the cost of gas and the cost of oil is such a big, big impact. So that's my soapbox. Well, super well that said. That was really yes. well said in terms of it being a, well a chess match. And I think the difference between Trump and this administration is Trump was not beholden to any elite governance where the Democratic Party is essentially not really the Democratic Party as it once was. It's more of a globalist party now. And I mean, just yesterday, right? Oil hit 90 bucks which is up 40% over the past four months, a 10% monthly rise is definitely right. Not in line with what CPI is showing. So inflation, inflation. but it's complete opposite of ultimately what the data is showing. Right. So those two things aren't running hand in hand together. And unless, you know, the, like you said, Fed, the only way they can fight it is with their, you know, their inflation tool is just continuing to raise rates or Biden empties every last drop of the strategic petroleum reserve, which that isn't necessarily going to solve the issue either with OPEC taking the stance that they're taking. So it's a really, it, to me, it feels like a weird stalemate, right? That I don't see any real relief anytime soon unless the Fed continues to raise rates. And I think with what you said, right, there, there's definitely some outside pressures. I don't care. You know, I know a lot of people that say BRICS is not a big deal. And, you know, the globe is, you know, so tied into the strength of the U.S. dollar. The Chinese economy is so dependent. And, well, really, both of us are so codependent on our economies. So when you think about, like, 
what real bargaining power do we have right now based on this administration and what posture do we have on a global landscape? Not a ton, and it's not very strong at all. And if anything, the only way that I would see some relief coming in some of these you know, verticals, specifically in oil, is going to be we got to continue to do what the Fed has been shown to do and create a little bit more of a trickle effect of turmoil throughout the economy because there's too many things that are still propped up showing strength, which, you know, the global economy, I think, does not want to see that uh, the way it is right now. I mean, you, you, I'm not going to add too much. You guys said that perfectly. I don't think that's conspiracy at all. I think for people need to listen to what you both just said over again to really connect all the dots. Look, I think there's no doubt that these countries, Saudi Arabia, China, India, are looking to figure out how to be more self-sufficient. And they are tired of us as the bully telling them exactly what to do um, when it's convenient for us. You know, it, it's um, we ought to trust other countries to follow their own self-interests. And when they don't follow our self-interests, we somehow get upset with them. I think that's really interesting. And, you know, Maddie, right before we started talking, you talked about um, right before we started recording, you know, there is a, we're upset with OPEC because they didn't lower, they, they didn't increase production, therefore keeping our, our product, our, our oil prices high, right? Gas prices high. Today, or maybe yesterday, uh, there are riots all over New York City about climate change and getting off of fossil fuels and, you know, banging on the doors of Washington. And so I think it's really just hypocritical, perhaps, maybe even ironic, that these countries are following their own self-interests. They're trying to learn how to be more independent keep the money inside their own countries and create their own stabilities. And we have oil here in the United States, but we refuse to drill it. Therefore we're dependent on some other country on the other side of the world. And um, so I think it's just super like, it's almost ignorant what we're doing, you know? Um, so I don't know what the solution is, but I just think it's like, it's so it's ironic. It's like, we're bitching and whining, but we have the oil right there for, for virtue signaling reasons. We can't go get it. We tell the bully down the street to give it to us at the cheap price. He's like, go F yourself. Then we're angry at him when he's just following his own self-interest. It's like, guys, let's wake up. Let's be careful what's going on. What, you know, smell the roses. And I'm not Don't a politician. I'm... I mean, there's plenty of American oil companies that benefit from all of it too. Like I, I live in Texas. Well, right? yeah, that's another, yeah. You know, and so there's, it doesn't hurt everybody when inflation's up, but, the, mm -hmm. but anyway, yeah, it's a, but yes, there's, there's, there's other ways to tap in and fight it. That's almost like the doomsday scenario where instead of tapping into the oil, they're like, yeah, but if there's a nuclear war, we're going to wish we still had our oil. And it's like keeping stuff for like the, the scenario that will likely never happen instead of living a better life now is so um, the wrong way to do it. Well, we've, we've already been recording for quite a while. So let's actually pivot to, and um, I want to pivot to Mooch's topic. Mooch, if you want to 
pitch us. You have a billion dollar idea that you want to talk oh, yeah. about, a business idea. So I know we're going to take a 180 degree turn here, audience. So apologize for that. But Mooch has an idea. He wants to talk about it. So he's um, so honorably yep. decided to bring it up here first as he is the trend spotter. So let's, let's issue process the topic. What's going on. Yeah, these are my, these are my promises, man. I told you guys on here that the, I, I love doing it on my podcast and everywhere else. When I have the big predictions, I share them and people should tie in. I checked out auctions in Vegas last week too. So the, as I'm trying to figure out where some of those next markets are that fit that scenario. So stay tuned Hold on, on where just to make sure you're, you're not selling RVs or to- toilet paper. That's not your billion dollar idea. I'm not right? sharing. Uh, I'm not share- sharing bomb shelters or lessons <laughs> on how to skin your own cow. All <laughs> right. Bullets. So okay, go. we got this giant stalemate now happening in the world, right? Tons of equity in every house. People can't sell. People can't really refi. They so so essentially average person. Has a five hundred thousand dollar house, three hundred thousand dollar loan on it. The people that we're seeing go into foreclosure in Texas right now are like that scenario. They've got like forty to fifty percent equity, but their credit cards are maxed and they're just out of cash. Right? Inflation is like it's just happening. Right? People have mm. less cash because of the turmoils. The thing I shared on my Instagram uh, earlier today was that three years in a row income is down. Right? Average income's down two thousand dollars a year year over year. Again, it's been like that for three years. So there is, so my billion dollar idea or my gazillion dollar idea is whoever figures out how to tap into that equity will, will win, will be the king. And so the ideas of tapping into that equity, a simple way of tapping into that equity. So especially like in Austin where prices are now 25% less than they were, but they still have 40% equity. So someone has a $300,000 loan on a $500,000 house house was worth 600,000 not long ago. So that sort of a person right now actually needs money, but they can't get a traditional second deed of trust. The two, so two options on the company that I think we, I want to, I want to create one, the very simple version is a hard money lending deal that says, Hey, we will tap into your equity, right? And we will tap into your equity and we'll give you a hundred thousand dollar loan on a hundred thousand dollars second that doesn't have to have the same sort of regulations that the other seconds do. Cause there's a lot of regulation on, if you get a second, it has to be the same bank. There's a lot of regulations in Texas around it, but I think there's going to be creative ways around that. And I think the other upside or the other like big idea will probably actually be, Hey, I would like to buy 25% of your house for a hundred thousand dollars. Right? So it's worth 500. You owe 300. I'm going to give you a hundred grand now for 25% of your house, right? So now you're, and, and it could be, and it could be interest-based or it could be equity-based or it could be like, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what that payment system is, but the idea of helping people tap into the equity now while they're in trouble, but being able to buy into that house that has the upside of the fact that seven years from now, the market's back to where it was or above that. And so, so I think it's a giant idea, not because for the two reasons, because of the amount of equity in every home. And because of the amount of need that people have, because we're getting so many creative requests from people just going like, I've got no money, but $200,000 in equity, but my house isn't liquid anymore. Like I, there was another article today that shows how the, the person's uh, primary resident is the least liquid it's ever been. Meaning like there's the, le- the lowest chance now, like liquid being how quick can you sell something? 
And like somebody's personal residence just isn't. So that's the whole business plan of like the foreclosure leads we sell and everything else is people going, Hey, I'll sell my house for three fifty today instead of going into foreclosure, even though it's worth 500. So that's my idea that people need to tap into that, figuring out the system that will tap into that equity. But it's also this creative time that instead of saying like, Hey, I'll buy your house for three fifty, even though it's worth 500, which some people go, yes, but there's nowhere to go. I've got nowhere to go. Um, it's that idea of you can keep your house and you'll have an extra hundred grand in your bank account right now. And it's kind of taking advantage is maybe the wrong word, but it's kind of betting on that idea that people would rather have money now and forego the upside later. But it could even be yep. something like, Hey, I'll buy 25% of your house at today at, you know, at today's you know $300,000 valuation, uh, for this, but I get the next upside when it sells or, or you can't sell without it. What are your guys' thoughts about that? About, I guess about the opportunity. You think it's a realistic opportunity and, or like, is, are there better ways that people could try to tap into that equity? We, um, funny that you bring this up. It was, was pre COVID. So it was what, maybe 2018 or 19. Um, a buddy of mine started a, a hedge fund and, um, wanted me to jump on board with him and kind of, I was helping him out with some stuff, but this is exactly what he was doing. It was home equity unlock. And it was essentially for people in those exact types of situations that wanted that type of capital. There's actually a decent amount of competitors in the space. Have you done some research in who the players are, kind of bigger players are in that space? Yes, but I haven't seen anybody that's like, um, I guess, a big player. Are there big, big players in it right now? There's, there's a couple. There's a couple that, that do that in, in almost the same capacity that you just um, shared in terms of whether it's buying equity in their home at a discount to unlock that line of credit or, and, and it's just, uh, you know, no interest, no payments We're taken upside, but there's some kind of covenants around how they recapture that, that investment and mitigate kind of their risk in second position. Um, or they're, they're essentially doing creative clear outs of the first and, and bringing in some capital to do a cash out on the second. But I loved the model. I think it's brilliant, especially right now, right? When the cost of capital is so brutal for some people, I, I could see it making sense from an equity standpoint of taking a sliver of the pie without there being any debt service to it. Because unless you can make the cost of capital appetizing for people, why would they not just go with the bank versus, you know, your option. Um, but I, I think there is definitely a need for it right now. When you think about the trillions, I think I forget what the statistic was, but the, it's the most, I think it's over a trillion dollars now, right? The most equity United States housing market has ever seen ever right now today. And yet what 90% of mortgages are sub four or 5%. Yeah. So there's really no incentive for anybody to take money above and beyond that. But there's people that are in cash crunches. And I think that is going to continue to become a louder and louder and louder narrative that we see and hear consistently going forward, especially because I just think that we're still in very, I don't think all the dust is settled and I don't think all the dominoes have fallen yet. And I think there's going to be some more distress that comes at some point where people are going to need to tap into that. Um, and maybe you know, liquidating the home is going to be their last, last choice. And these types of scenarios and options are going to start to make a lot more sense for people to explore. So I love it. Yeah. I, mean, I said last week, I'll never sell my personal residence here. 
because it's like a 3% interest rate. But in theory, there's like a million and a half in equity in the house that I'm sitting in, but there's no traditional second deed of trust or line of credit that's legal, right? Mm. Just can't because it's a jumbo, because of the situation it's in. But like, but also my lines of credit with banks now are so expensive and some of them are getting canceled for no reason where I'm like, I need a new million dollar line and a creative solution that could let me tap a million bucks out of my personal house to go help run my businesses, whatever else right now. Like I would say, yes, I would say yes to something at an extreme rate. I would probably say yes to selling 25% of my house knowing that like, okay, when I sell it later, like, however, we got to slice it legally to go like, yeah, I want to take a million bucks out of my house. Right. I think like, so, I, well, I think ashish. so. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't know as much about this opportunity as you guys do, but did this exist in 2008 or is this a new business model? Is this uh, this new industry? I mean, I don't think anyone ever had the equity they have now. So, so the, in 2008, I, I guess, people didn't have the equity and so people didn't question, have the reason to never sell their house. Yeah. Right. I guess my question is, I mean, Mooch, I don't know if you're quite the right subject market for what you're talking about. And maybe you're thinking you are, but I think what you're saying is the people that are really going through foreclosure, not trying to put a million dollars out of their house to invest in their business, but people that can cannot afford their current mortgage payment for whatever reason and are gonna lose it, even though they have hundred fifty thousand dollars of equity in their house. I guess just taking a couple of chess moves past that, okay, you raise capital you buy 20% of the house or you take a hundred grand, give them a hundred grand and um, you know, whatever it is, whether it's interest or equity or, or whatever portion you need to take from them. I guess my question is like a few steps beyond that is what do they do with that money? Right. And so most people keep, most people keep their equity because it's sort of their like biggest investment. It's sort of their retirement. It's money they can't touch, which means if they can't touch it, they can't use it, right? And we know Americans do not have a history of saving money when they have it. So I guess my question back to you is, it could be a good business model, but does it have sustainable competitive advantage long-term if, if we know that people's buying or spending behaviors are such that you, I can't, I can't, I don't have any money to spend. And I just got a hundred thousand dollars, right? You just bought twenty five percent of my house. Oh yeah, are you kidding me? I'm about to be homeless. Fuck yeah, I'll give you twenty five percent of my house because if I don't get this hundred grand, right, then I'm basically going to be homeless. So it's basically free money to me. So what yep. do I do with that money? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to save it? I'm just going to use it, and then I'm going to run out of it again. And now I have a higher mortgage. Well, I guess you're buying, so it doesn't increase my, and so you, from a business perspective, you actually may may be compromised again when they continue in a two years time, spend all the money, three years time, spend all the money and now continue, can't, still can't make the payment. So now you're responsible for it to hold your equity. Um, But I just don't feel like people are responsible enough to manage that money well. And what are they going to do with it? So I suppose that closed loop, you know, will that get the business in trouble? Yeah. 
I think in phase one of your business plan, if you raise $100 million and you say, we're going to go give away $100 million, we're going to buy 25% of 1,000 homes or whatever the math is, right? I think that phase one is possible. But then what happens at phase two, phase three, phase four, phase five? Does it start to erode and fall apart based on injecting $100 million into the economy, giving this money to people that are not like you, which are business owners, that are people that are factory workers, people that work at in service economy, jobs, you know, drivers, whatever it is, who are just sort of at the middle to low economy side. What are they doing with that money? And then how does that circle back? So I guess that's my that would be my first initial response to that. Yeah. Those are, it's it's good points because I think it is I think it is really and it's not necessarily people in foreclosure either. It's just the average person that is living month to month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in, you know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, they'd get a call from their buddy that was a mortgage broker and say, I'm going to give you $100,000 and your payment on your house is going to go up 200 bucks a month. So, so, go, so, so work this through with me. So you give, you give somebody who is maybe not we give somebody $100,000 right. and they go buy a boat and two jet skis. Yeah. Right? So and now that's, what? Cause that's, cause that's what they're going to do essentially. Like that's what people do when they get extra money unless it's some sort of a reverse mortgage thing that maybe you tie up a couple years of payments and you release it by the month or something like that because you could do something where we'll give you fifty thousand dollars today and then we're going to pay your mortgage for the next two years right so like because the, the thing there's two things you're trying to do one is lend money where you can charge a fee and a high interest rate Two, if I've got $100 million of these um, creative second position, 25% ownership shares, then can I go get a real line of credit against that? Like, can I actually securitize that into mm. a rate that's a sub, you know, sub five, sub six, something? Because right rate. now you can't, individually you can't, but if it's all of a sudden a giant business that's like offset with those, can now can I get cheaper money somehow that's beyond my expertise that's the brainstorm part but like so then let's say the other thing we're trying to do we're not like, so plan one is we're trying to lend money at a fee plan two is we're also locking in a value in real estate that we think is going to be worth more in six or seven years because in a lot of places the price is now corrected essentially it's saying the house is worth five we're going to buy it based on a four hundred thousand dollar valuation to, to, to tap this to tap this cash um, and so and if it does survive a few years, then eventually the property gets sold or more. And so you charge a point, you get some interest. And then when it sells, you get a 25 to 35% pop. And maybe the average person is fine. And maybe it even like, so why won't a person sell right now when they've got a 3% mortgage of 1500 bucks, because they're never going to find anything cheaper. But then they tap their hundred grand and now they owe 20 and essentially now they're paying 2,500 a month on stuff. However you work out the scenario. Well, now maybe it's worth selling and they go because now it's not quite as affordable as it was. So they tap it and then a little bit later they say, let's sell. So not a risk. Free. I think it's a similar business to lending, right? So not risk free and it's a similar business to lending second position. It's riskier stuff because most people that take the money um, won't necessarily spend it on good things. Cause it's human nature. I don't do it either. Just like for all the judging that it may sound like I'm doing like, when I refi stuff, half of it goes to toys and half of it goes to good investments. I'm not the smartest with when all of a sudden when I become flush, I don't invest at all. I should, but I don't <laughs> love life too much. 
I'm, I'm, I'm not I worried about that. I'm worried about the, the end of the world might come love, so soon that I better spend. I love like, yeah, like, you're not buying RVs and toilet paper. Yeah. I love I'm doing it. it the other I, way. You so, know what would be interesting would be to, and this might be a, maybe a parallel product to that, but if there were people that were interested in that, right. Kind of like what you just said, half goes to toys and half goes to investing. Well, a lot of people don't necessarily have vehicles or resources that they know to invest in or what to invest in. So if you not only were the one giving the, (coughs) excuse me, the loan, but you were also showing them a path to generating, hey, you split X amount over here and here's what that growth and or, you know, return could look like as well, right? That might be an incentivized way of, you know, creating customers that one, you can lend to, and two, you can play an arbitrage by getting them to give you money back and going and redeploying that at an interest rate that you know you might be able to, you know, turn a profit on. That's I mean, we're going to call that mooch bank, mooch bank. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating twist, right? Because yes, because you're saying, hey, you're going to tap into a hundred grand. And here's where you can use and like, don't squander it all. Go, go do X, Y, and Z with whatever you want to play with it for. But let's, let's leave a good chunk of this over here as well. And let me show you how that done over here can actually make you money. And then you're just playing the arbitrage on relending that, you know, redeploying that capital up. I like that idea. You're like, yeah, take 50,000 of that, invest it over here. You can make 12% a year on it and maybe make a $25,000 pop later. And so it won't cost you anything. Yep. What is the what is the um, what's the exit strategy? If you only own twenty percent of the house, can you really control whether they sell the house or not? It, I, so I think that's where like the securitization happens, or if they're in default, you could decide to sell it, right? Or you're banking on the fact that eventually people do, or it's more like lending, but you just have a bigger spread, where the idea is like, as long as there's like a payment that's made or something, you know. If the if, if if you're getting paid eight to nine percent on the money, but you've securitized it in a way that costs you five to six, do you care if it ever gets paid off? Even though that's the bigger payday, eventually they do. Eventually, you know, properties sell and properties trade. So that's what I. So I need to work out a lot of that stuff. But I, I think that I the, think one of the things one of the things though is is I'm not suggesting this or saying I agree with it, but I'm sure there's many countries we've talked about today that would be happy to give you a hundred million dollars to buy U.S. assets. <laughs> buy a portion of U.S. assets. Yeah, the Saudis are, have a $1.5 trillion sovereign fund that you write a good business plan, get on a plane to Riyadh, and I'm sure some guy is going to write you a $100, $200, 300000000 million check to say, wait a second, you just gave me a way to buy 25% of the equity in American homes all across the world. I'm in. Here's the check, buddy. See you later. I'm on your And I got a 30-year vision. I don't need the money fast. Here's 30-year 30, here's 30 money. Not, not yeah, to I'm say totally that that's what I'm telling flight. you to do, and I'm not promoting that, but it, it's – and you could probably get it at a, a low single-digit interest rate, my friend. See, I think we just gave everybody this billion-dollar idea, and now I'm going to show the difference between an idea and implementation. And the uh, and we can see who out there is the ready-aim people that never shoot or the people that will go shoot and do the same thing because it's a big enough business that's around, but – yeah, I think you're you're right. Like the the sale for raising money, you're going to raise it in from foreign parties is actually easier to raise money than any other way. 
It's like you're oh, going to yeah. own a whole bunch of U- U.S. real estate. And it's going to be a small yeah. portion to where the government doesn't, our government doesn't really care because just 20, 25% of all these assets, it has the same upside. I mean, Bla- yep. I, what is Blackstone is buying all these single family homes all across America, right? Making it basically unaffordable for somebody to buy a house right now. So you don't think that these other foreign countries are going to try to step in and, and a guy like Mooch who has all the data, has done it in two or three cycles, who has all the systems, people, team can't raise the money and can't say, oh yeah, this is a systems problem. This is not a strategy problem. This is like, I have the systems in place. I have the data. I have the contacts. I have the process. Like, let's go. I have the And then once you prove, once you prove concept, it's like Amazon, right? It's like how many $300 checks can you write? It's like, it's so scalable. So I even know the people that are most likely to take it because they've maxed out their credit cards. Like yeah, we've no, got this, I mean, we've got the stats on, to say like this person has no credit card debt left and they have a hundred thousand in yep. equity. I think I'm going to call on the audience. If you guys have any questions, if you have ideas, if you have any uh, opinions on why his idea is, let's not, we don't care to think his idea is good. Tell us why his reason or his, his idea is bad. Why would his idea not work? Send them into our podcast, send them into Maddie and um, let's, let's figure this out. Yeah. Or why am I a horrible person for like trying to do it? Cause I'm sure there's going to be plenty of those. I don't think you're a horrible person. Like- Cause your, your goal is to keep people in their houses. So this is capitalism. Let's not virtue signal here, right? That's yeah. what we're talking about. Let's not virtue signal. You're trying to help people stay in their homes. What are they going to do with their equity? Okay. Maybe their retirement went down, but then you're also giving them an opportunity to invest half of that money into other real estate investments or other opportunities that they may otherwise not be able to do kind of pulling a Grant Cardone here, right? Have you read Die With Zero? Yeah, great book. Yeah, get the money now. There's, you know, it's kind of like the way I, I look at it, you know, metaphorically, right? It's like, you know, you're, some people might say, well, you're given, you know, you're given a pyro who's holding an empty gas tank, you know, an empty gas can, you know, some more gasoline, right? And they're just going to do what they're going to do with it. But they're, But I think you can give them a, you know, you can give them some rules with the gas can and a fire extinguisher as well and still find a way to make it a win-win and create value for people. And that's what capitalism is, right? It's, you know, at the end of the day, capitalism is one person is going to win more than the other person is, but it doesn't mean two people can't win together at the same time. That's right. That's right. And both things and can be I, true, right, Maddie? Two both things, things can, can be, be true. true. And so that's where I think the idea of like the people who want that and need that, but you can also, in that process, educate them on a parallel or bolt-on type of value proposition that could be, you know, what we just talked about. And I'm sure we could brainstorm three, four, five, six other ones, you know, in a relatively short period of time. I like the model and why I love Mooch is he talks big, but he also executes bigger. And I think that's, you know, something that, you know, is the difference between people who are really successful. You know, you, you and I have joked around about this before. Like we're not the smart, smartest, fastest, sharpest, you know, sexiest, uh, dudes. We're just kind of dumb enough to pound the pavement every single day and bring something that you see, you know, as a vision to life. And obviously you're really good at surrounding yourself with really smart people that execute as well. So I love the idea. I think it's, I think it's a good one. I think with where the economy, the world, and, you know, specifically our housing market is that it's one that could bring a lot of value and make a lot of money. Yeah, it's unique. 
I mean, I was, I was I, one of the people stu stupid enough to climb in foreclosure windows to see if they were vacant. Like just, I would bet on Mooch. I would bet on Mooch. Do we have enough time for anything else? Did we hit our, I mean, today, this was yeah, good topics been, today. We definitely missed Mike. Topics. Do we have anything else we want to hit on today? I think we talked about good topics. We missed Mike, man. You know, Mike, the sage always has good perspective. I, I guess we could maybe go around really quick about this concept of how the pharmaceutical, before we close here, um, how the pharmaceutical industry and big pharma and the medical industry is sort of highly incentivized to keep people unhealthy and yeah. constantly keep selling drugs, keep us in hospitals. Um, you know, probably the food food administration and, and that state probably has some invested interest here too, to not educate us about what we're eating, what's in our food, what are the ingredients we're eating um, and just keep us sort of at, at hypertension, uh, bad metabolic health, obese. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great information and content out there about how to live healthy. And we're not nutritionists or, or, or doctors here, but I think it's just from a structural perspective, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, so Maddie, you want to kick us off and share any thoughts? Well, I mean, I know that Aaron, you've got some very personal experience on this front. I'm curious on your thoughts on that. But, you know, I was talking, I don't know, I don't know if anybody, um, there was a the gal name, I think it was like, I am I'm Boss Lee, or uh, I saw a lot of influencers and people on social media posting about this gal who obviously made a big impact on a lot of people's lives. And essentially, she got diagnosed. Oh, with, she just passed away. Yeah, just passed away. Um, I think over the weekend. And it was pretty, I think, a shocker to a lot of people. And she got kind of diagnosed with, um, I think it was like stage four colon cancer. And um, one of my buddies who knows how I feel about, I, I, I don't, I am not anti-Western medicine. I'll say that. Like I get my two blood, you know, health panels every single year. I get my physical. I'm, you know, I see a ton of value in our system, our technology, being proactive. So, so I, I want to preface what I'm going to say with, I'm not anti-Western medicine. Um, but an Western medicine is not my only truth that I believe in or subscribe to either. I've done and experienced Eastern medicine. I think naturopaths are, you know, very, applicable in today's world and have some value to bring. I think there's a lot of different options and available um, resources that aren't necessarily um, promoted in Western medicine because they don't make money. And, and I think that's, you know, something that most people would acknowledge and say, you know, is, is a, a, a real, you know, situation in the world we live in today. You know, most of I'm I'm a big proponent of I don't take, you know, um, prescription pills. I think I can count on one hand. I think I took Vicodin one time when I got, you know, my my wisdom teeth pulled out. And other than that, I don't take Advil. I don't I just I'm, that's not my personal subscription to health. That being said, I understand there's a place and a time for it. If I got diagnosed with cancer, you know, Tomorrow, I'd be tapping into a lot of the Western medicine that's available if it was a real extreme and dire circumstance. That being said, I think the most generic ways of health and practicality and how it's applied to the average person today 
is to get them tied into the matrix of this extreme medical mafia profiting first over people first system. And if they were to go and cure cancer tomorrow, that is billions of dollars that are completely wiped out. If they were to cure obesity tomorrow, that is billions of dollars, right? So I think we're so far down this rabbit hole of profit over people that, you know, we apply this thing, which then creates another system that then needs or you know, symptom that needs to get treated. And, you know, that continues to exacerbate itself. So I think I'm more so just trying to keep my head on a swivel and be um, open-minded to the the fact that, you know, the, the medical world that we've built in this machine that, you know, we're all so beholden to now is really like not benefiting human beings. And, and it doesn't seem to be the conversation that anybody wants to have because it doesn't make dollars and cents. And so... I am curious, Mooch, on, on your take of, you know, how experiencing it with Maddie and, you know, her um, challenges with her health and, and you being a super big health nut and being proactive and not necessarily all about, you know, taking this or that, but, you know, being very open-minded to all the different things outside of maybe the, the medical matrix that many people are subscribed to, what your thoughts are and how we as entrepreneurs, we as husbands, we as fathers, you know, can maintain and, and be proactive in taking our health extremely seriously. And when is the right time to tap into what the medical system provides? And when is it important to maybe either steer clear of it or, or look at other options and resources outside of what, you know, this machine tells us is the only way to be healthy or to, you know, get healthy? Yeah. Well said, yeah, the Daddy. medical machine's interesting. I'm not anti-Western medicine either. Like I do, uh, I do the doctor stuff. I also do my cryotherapy and I do my blood work and I do all my, all my extra and I do my laser, my red lasers and all sorts of stuff. So I believe in all of it. Right. And which is funny, like, um, you know, my wife is like, I didn't get the COVID vaccine, but I've pretty much got every other vaccine that was out there. My wife is like anti-vax, anti-medicine. So like my wife has gone to a doctor once since she had our last baby and she would prefer to never go in. So she'll be like dying of infections and being like, my body will just handle it. I'll just wait. And so it'll take her four weeks to recover from something instead of a few days with antibiotic, but that's how she chooses to do it. So she, on one end, she's like, she never wants to go to a doctor or a hospital because she does not trust them because of life experiences that she's had. And on my side, I'm not anti at all. Um, and even a good friend of ours, Hal, when he had this really rare cancer recently and he went to them and he said, Hey, I'm a really holistic guy. I'm not going to yep. do chemo. I'm not going to do all these other things. I'm going to fight this naturally. And they're like, well, you're going to die. Essentially there, there was 99% chance he was going to die anyway. And they gave him a couple of days if he didn't yes. do something like on the spot. Totally. And so then he yeah. was like, okay. So then he did a combination of, all right, I'm going to do chemo. I'm going to do Western medicine. I'm going to do all those things, but I'm also going to do all the things I possibly can to detox my body. And then he did all these things on the other side that was the holistic stuff to get the poison out. And so he attacked it from both ends and said, okay, I'll do exactly like I'll put in the chemo, but I'm going to do all these things that the doctor would never tell me to do to get the chemo poison out of the rest of my body. And man, and he beat a 99 to one odds. Now he's a magical 
hero, Hal Elrod. Like you go read his Miracle yeah. Morning, you go read the Miracle Equation, right? He's a legend. And he was a legend when he went and beat this. And I remember hanging out with him like during that process. So, so, I, so I'm not anti either, I guess is my point. But I think there's a couple problems with medical, the way that it works right now. One is like the insurance industry and the businesses and the supplies and the products that people can use to fight it. So there was um, essentially like early on when Maddie broke her ankle, there's like a special machine on the third break. There's a special machine called like a bone density, something that helps the bone form faster because her bone wasn't healing like it normally should. Right. And so this bone density machine, you call and they go, okay, we can cover it with insurance, but it usually takes three or four months to get approved. So like, let's start that process and we'll see if you can get approved. Well, it is a bone density machine that's supposed to make your broken bone heal faster. If you get this three or four months from now, what's the point? Uh. Right? And so, or you can pay for it in cash now. So then the option was like, do you want it or not? Yes, we want it. We'll pay cash. We don't get an insurance credit for it. And then there's this other side of like that insurance business because one of my buddy makes medical supplies where they go out and they'll have a belief where, hey, we think your insurance is going to cover it. So they give the machine to the people ahead of time. So that way they can get the bone density machine when they need it. But then the insurance company only pays for it like half the time. So every year they write off between five and $10 million in product sales because they gave them the product early. So the smarter business says like, hey, pay up front or with insurance, we're not going to give it to you ahead of time. They don't have any waste or any loss, but they don't get to change lives. And the guy that wants to change the most lives actually makes the least amount of profit because the insurance company's like, hey, our person's already healed, right? Three months later, their bone's already better. They use your bone density machine. We don't need to do that. There's a big problem with like medical devices and when people can deliver them and what insurance is going to pay for or not. And then with Maddie's rare disease, we saw the same thing. Like we went to the Western medicine places and they said, there's no cure. Or they said, let's, you know, let's drill a hole in the back of her head and sever the nerve, or let's install a thing in her back that will shock her to get rid of the pain and all these different things. And then we found the place that said, hey, we can heal her. We've healed people before. And they're an all cash system instead. And they've got machines that are $25,000, $35,000. And I bought them all, right? Because the system was like, hey, and, and other people did too that had less means, but they would like sell their house to buy the machine. Right. One of the gals just came out here from London. The one of the, one of the gals that Maddie was in treatment with in Arkansas just came out to Austin in London to go to the second place that Maddie had and her parents sold their house so she could come out and get the treatment that Maddie gets here. And it's not that insurance doesn't cover like medical treatments, but this special stuff insurance doesn't cover because it's not traditional because it hasn't gone through the right way. And so that is a big struggle where you have people struggling with these medical conditions and they have health insurance and there is a solution, but for whatever reason, health insurance doesn't cover it. That's a frustrating thing. And then like, I guess the last thing with it, I don't really have any good news with any of this other than, and I don't know what the solution is either. Yeah. But there's, so the people that are the miracle workers in medicine, they start out going, I am going to heal everyone. I'm not going to deal with 10 patients. I'm not going to deal with 20 patients. I'm going to do hands-on and it's like the leader of the company that's the expert and they will figure out how to heal people. And everybody that we met in the pain service industry started like that with a very small operation with a mission to cure any sort of pain possible to prevent people from killing themselves. And they were amazing at it. 
and they were doing it on this really small scale. And they were hands-on with every patient and the head person knew every patient, knew every tactic because they were the brilliant ones. They were the, and, and then people say, you got to heal more than five people a month or five people a quarter. You got to do this bigger. You need more people in here. All right, let's get an assistant. And maybe assistant can run one of these treatments. And let's start. And now these places that used to have five people at a time have like 70 or 75 people at a time, but now nobody's getting the care anymore. So the other sad part about the medical industry is the people that are the miracle workers, mm. eventually it becomes a business, not out of bad intention, but like out of need. Cause people are like, you have to help us too. There's 70 people mm. that need my healing. Maybe I can do this, but then it becomes a factory like everybody else. Okay. Run them through. I don't have enough time to talk to all 75 patients. So I'll give them each five minutes. And so it's really hard to sustain these miracles. And, and, and we saw that at one at the facility she was at in Arkansas, that it's like growing like crazy. And so it was so much tougher for people to get it when it started with like this gal being able to heal people that no one else could heal. And now we're almost seeing it in the Austin one too, because now it's like starting to grow or at the beginning when there was, you know, two patients in there at a time. So we knew Maddie was going to see the head guy all the time. Now there's 10 people in there. Right. And yeah. she sees, and you know, we don't see them as often. So anyway, my opinions are, there's a big disconnect between the insurance industry and the treatment centers and the treatment options. And that disconnect, if could be solved, could change a lot of different people. Um, again, when it comes to the, the machines, the special machines and the special medical supplies that people need, when we had that scenario where it was like, here's the bone density thing that you can get in four months. If you wait for insurance, it was just, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous that it wasn't set up for people to heal. It was set up for um, money to be made. And it's, um, and it's unfortunate. And that's why people don't trust medicine, but people don't trust Western medicine. It's not that there isn't plenty of ways for it to work. So that's my, that's my soapbox on it. You know, to, to that point, what I, what I've written this word down like four times today is like trust and and truth. Mm. And I think if we, again, whether it's being honest with yourself and truthful with yourself, or it's being honest and truthful in your marriage, or it's being honest and truthful with the American people, I think this like this root word, if it at the root of it, truth or trust, it's such a powerful word that can positively move and make such an impactful difference in your own life, in your marriage, in the economy, in the world itself, right? It's like, if we were all just more truthful every single day in any capacity, and there was, there was like a hashtag that I, I had for, for some time, this was a theme maybe two or three years ago, because I kind of found myself kind of telling myself white lies and convincing myself of like something being better than it was, or maybe I wasn't sharing something totally with, you know, not anything bad, right? But like, if I was like 100% truthful in everything that I did with myself and everywhere I went, and if everybody was 100% truthful and transparent, and everything they did, like, what would the world look like? What would your relationships look like? What would your bank account look like? Like how, you know, I, I just, I find that there's so much power in truth. Oftentimes, right. I always think of that line of like, you can't handle the truth. Most people can't. But at the end of the day, I also have found that some of my greatest growth, you know, my biggest ahas, my biggest wins, and oftentimes, you know, my biggest failures that led to bigger wins or growth all came from like the truth, whether it was me telling myself 
the truth or somebody else telling me the truth that hurt my feelings or like exposed something about me. And I was just thinking of like, man, what, what would the world look like if we were all just honest and more truthful? And my hashtag was quit fucking lying. Like stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to other people. Stop lying in general. And whether it's the Ukraine war and us not feeling like we can trust the media and where our money is going, or it's the medical mafia and truth, right? Or it's in your own marriage and you're not saying something that maybe you should be honest or truthful about with your, whatever it may be, right? I just find that if we were all more truthful, I know for myself, and this is something I'm constantly trying to keep awareness up and around, quit fucking lying. Be honest, be truthful, be transparent. Like I'm such a more powerful, more confident, more connected, more intentional, more impactful person when I'm just being honest. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy and good. But when you are truthful and honest, I find that it's uh, the results and and the impact and, and the outcomes that I desire are um, are a lot better. I don't know. Anybody else relate to that? I'm not going to add a single thing. I'm not going to add it either. It's just, it's funny. We, we bend the truth or we lie or we spin or we tell a different story because we think it plays better. Mm -hmm. We started with Ukraine. Use Ukraine as an example. It gets spun. It gets spun in a way that they think is better. And the truth was actually better. Yeah. The truth always wins. Yep. Yeah, the truth, the truth would have been a better version uh, to share there. So I, I like that as a, as a, as a, a mic drop, point. close the thing out moment. I'm not like even going to add. So yeah, go ahead. Mooch, why don't you close this up today? Go ahead. Brother. Yeah. I mean, we gave people some, you know, we, we wanted you, we wanted all the listeners today to hear a little bit more about our opinions about things that you guys asked about, which was really like getting advice from us about real estate or markets or building businesses worldwide. Like that's all interesting, but I think some of you guys want to figure out who you were listening to. And so today we went into some of those other topics a little bit and hopefully like we gave you a little bit of action stuff. And I think if I was going to summarize some of it, it was like, don't stress too much about the stuff in the world. Like don't like, don't prep, don't plan, don't forego today's happiness for something that might never happen. Like you can keep your eye on stuff and be ready. um, But like, don't make the changes in your life yet you know inflation is still getting beat up and so like we've talked about how we can take action you know on inflation but again if we were going to summarize it like the best way ever that matt said at the end right like it's like that living your living every day for like the moment in life we have today you know and then be truthful with everything and when i think about all the stresses that i have going on over my last six months with different things, with people, with individuals, with businesses, with stuff that went wrong because somebody wouldn't tell me um, how the gray area or stretching the truth or spinning it, if that could have been avoided and everyone led with truth, everything would have turned out better. Do good and good things will happen. Yeah. Yes. Love it. Well, thank you everybody for listening. This is another beautiful episode of The King's Table with my brothers. We want you guys, we're going to continue to drop it on everyone's podcast individually. But if you have any suggestions, comments, ideas, questions, please uh, reach out to any of us. We are enjoying this thoroughly, as you can see. We're learning a lot. We're trying to drop real honest knowledge and truth and and give you more of a perspective of who we are and, and what we believe in. And um, 
and uh, yeah, I loved I loved the ending, how you ended, Maddie. It was beautiful, and okay. it wasn't virtue signaling, which I think was why it was so powerful. And um, it's the truth. Truth is, it just is. Thank you so much for listening to the King's Table. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.